We are continuing our series looking at the Gospel of Mark, and the title for today's preach is called Jesus Brings Freedom. Jesus Brings Freedom. Now, hopefully, through our time together, as we look through the text, we're going to discover several ways through which Jesus does this, the way that Jesus brings freedom. And then we'll finish by looking at how Jesus can bring freedom for you and freedom for those around you. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to Mark chapter 5. That's Mark chapter 5. And we are going to read through from verses 1 to 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran down and fell before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask, Father, that you would speak to us by your spirit. Bring revelation and understanding. Let your living word be active. Let it go right to the heart of our lives. And let us not go out of this place unchanged. We want to be transformed by you. 
We ask that in Jesus' name, amen. To help us understand the type of freedom Jesus is able to bring, it's helpful to ask probably several questions of the text. For example, where has Jesus gone to? Why he has gone there? Uh, Jesus has actually already now cast out a few demons, so why is Mark bringing this particular story to our attention? And therefore, what has God wanted to show us through his word? So let's start looking at our first question. eh? Where did Jesus go? In the previous chapter, Jesus says to his disciples, let us go across to the other side. It's here that Jesus has finished a day of teaching to a very large crowd on the western shore of Galilee. The day is long and the teaching runs until evening. Jesus then leaves the crowd, sets sail with his disciples to cross to the other side and travels from west to east. Well, you're looking at me, west to east. Of course, here is where Jesus is asleep on the boat as they're crossing. Not unexpected, I, you know, I imagine after a long day's teaching, I mean, I need, I need a nap after just 30 minutes of preaching. It's not surprising that Jesus in his humanity is pretty exhausted. Of course, there's probably a little bit more to that. But however, a great storm arises, as we know, And the disciples are in fear for their lives, and they call upon Jesus to do something. And Jesus awakes. He rebukes the storm, and the sea becomes calm. The journey then continues to the other side. So they come into port to a place called Gerasenes, which is part of a region called the Decapolis. And Decapolis means ten cities. So they were naturally, as you might expect, 10 cities across that region. If you travel back into the scriptures uh, to Numbers and chapter 32, you're going to discover that this area is a portion of land given by Moses to some of the people of the Israelites, to Reuben, to Gad, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh. It's not in Canaan, which is the promised land for Israel, and the place where actually Jesus spends the majority of his ministry time, But it is land given to a small portion of God's people before they crossed the River Jordan. So west of the river, if you're looking at that, west of the river was Canaan, the promised land, and then east of the river was this land formerly known as, in the Old Testament, as Gilead. And Gilead is now known as the Decapolis. It was historically Israel's land, but now, in the time of Jesus, was predominantly inhabited by Gentiles. It was heavily Greek-influenced, and Jews were actually in the minority. So if you've ever wondered, you know, when you're reading this text, why there's a herd of 2,000 of pigs and herdsmen to look after them, when we start to understand that this area was occupied by a majority of non-Jewish folk, this helps us make a little bit more sense of the context. Because for Jewish people... Pigs were declared an unclean animal, and they were forbidden even to touch. So it's unlikely that this was a you know, popular picnic spot for the Jews, yeah? But it does reveal something significant about Jesus and the type of freedom he was going to bring, which leads us on to our next question. Why did Jesus go there? 
Well, I believe ultimately Jesus went there, of course, to bring freedom. But to answer that a little bit more successfully, we're going to look at three ways I believe Jesus intended to bring freedom by taking his disciples over to Gerasenes. So firstly, I want to share that I think Jesus traveled to the other side to bring freedom for an individual. Secondly, Jesus traveled to the other side to bring freedom for the Gentiles. And thirdly, I believe Jesus traveled to the other side to bring freedom for the Jews. And I'll explain what I mean by that as we unpack the text. Okay, so freedom for an individual. So he arrives on the eastern shore, Sea of Galilee. Mark tells us that, you know, in very Mark language, immediately. This happens immediately. Jesus comes across a man who has been possessed by a demon, or you might have the phrase, unclean spirit. When, we, um, when you get the language of clean and unclean used in the scriptures, typically it is referring to a level of purity, of holiness. Clean and unclean is the equivalent of holy and unholy. So here you have an unholy spirit at work in a man, a spirit that has driven this man from society. It's isolated him. It's tormented him. It's tussled with him, fought against him, will against will, brought harm to him, and has warred against this man's mind so that he is no longer recognizable to others around. His identity has been subdued. And so when, Jesus, when he approaches Jesus, Jesus is actually engaging not with the man who was, used to be present, but the one who has taken control. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look at this situation, probably want to immediately pull this into our day, into our time, and understand how do we recognize this kind of spiritual oppression, this type of activity in a person today? And how do we draw a line between that which might be biological or chemical, or psychological, and that which is spiritual? And I think that's actually quite a tough thing to do, by the way, because I think when you look at some of the behavior presented by this man, you're, I think you can very easily cross the bridge into our context and recognize some of those inner struggles and behavioral patterns at work in people today, that of isolation, that of inner tussle, that of self-harm, which leave you wondering, okay, well, what does that mean? How, how, as, a Christian, how as a Christian, how do I help in that situation? How do I understand so thankfully, the text is there to help us. It's there to help us understand something of what is demonic and what is not, and how Jesus responds and what that might mean for us. So here's the first point. One, the man driven by the demon approaches and presents himself to Jesus. I think to me that is the most crucial tool in understanding the difference between that which might be demonic, that might... that which might be spiritual oppressive, uh, spiritually oppressive activity versus that might be what might be biological or chemical or psychological or even you know, a different type of spiritual warfare. As Jesus enters the environment, the demon is drawn to Jesus like a magnet. It reveals himself and begins pleading with him, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Now, as believers, I don't think that we need to develop a detective agency that specializes in understanding demonic activity, despite how cool the outfits might look, or the merchandise we might sell. 
the presence of Jesus is enough. You and I, every follower of Jesus, we carry the presence of Jesus with us into every situation. Even more so when two or three are gathered together, when the church comes together, the presence of God is here with us in a greater measure. Which means if there's demonic activity going on, you're not going to need to wonder about, uh, wonder about it. You won't need to look for it. it. It will find you. That's exciting, isn't it? Right? It will be drawn in and drawn out into the open. It will come to you like a magnet because of Jesus. It will reveal itself because of Jesus. Now, <laughs> my mum's here. Right? <laughs> my mum will tell you the story. You can ask her afterwards. Uh, when I was a little boy, uh, a minister stopped mid-service, mid-preach to cast a demon out of me. That actually happened. Uh, not, not the demon being cast out, but he uh, stopped mid-service to cast a demon out of me because I was running backwards and forwards like a little loony tune at the back of the hall. Turns out I was just high on food coloring. <laughs> a little something called E102 was around then. It was found in tubs of Smarties. And that made children across the globe have lots of hyper fun. Demonic activity is going to be more than just behavior. Okay? It will reveal itself, make itself known in the presence of Jesus. Okay? You won't need to do anything. It will reveal itself. Here's my second point. If it's, Jesus, if it's coming to Jesus, let Jesus deal with it. Jesus is the one who is going to bring freedom into the situation. Now, it's true. The scripture tells us that authority is given to those who believe in Christ to cast out demons. But when you speak into that situation, the demons aren't recognizing your authority. They are recognizing the one from whom that authority comes from. The demons recognize the authority of God and of his son, Jesus Christ. And it is Jesus who knows how to deal with them. And so from my perspective, if there is ever a moment like that, it is the name of Jesus and his name only that I will speak into that situation. You know when we sing that song, Jesus for my family, I speak the holy name Jesus. The name of Jesus is enough to bring life, to bring liberty, to bring freedom. I don't have the wisdom to dialogue with a demon. <laughs> Who does? But Jesus does. I don't have the power to set a person free, but Jesus does. And I don't have the name above every other name, but Jesus does. So demonic activity makes itself known in the presence of Jesus, and his is the name we proclaim in that situation, that Jesus may bring freedom. So let's be wise in our understanding of that which is spiritually oppressive activity versus that which may be the outworking of biological or chemical or psychological circumstance. Amen? Yeah. Let's not rush to be the demon detective agency. But let's not be naive either. Just know the presence of Jesus and a response of Jesus will be enough. Do you know, in the, in the text, I do love that the first dialogue that happens is between Jesus and the demon... And the last dialogue of the text is between Jesus and the man who's been set free. This guy who could not be contained 
who was tormented, roaming around, crying out, subject to the demon, after encountering Jesus, was found, I love this language, you know, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. The disciples in crossing the sea had just witnessed Jesus the peacemaker in the midst of a physical storm. Now they'd witnessed Jesus the peacemaker in the midst of a spiritual storm. The man was present, at peace, sitting, not roaming, in his right mind, not agonizing and clothed, which I love in Scripture, you know, speaks of that removal of shame. Jesus had brought him freedom. Now, what was he going to do with that newfound freedom? Jesus brought freedom for the individual. Now, Jesus also brought freedom for the Gentiles. The man, quite naturally, wanted to leave his surroundings, start afresh, start a new chapter in life. And what better way to go than to go and be with Jesus and be with him and like his disciples? But what does Jesus tell him? No, probably not what you want to hear at that moment. He tells the guy to stay, and more than that, he says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Now, I don't know what your experience of life has been, but if you've been known for a particular way of behaving, I imagine it's actually very hard to go back to that environment as a changed person. Back to those people who know you, who have a history with you, maybe people you've hurt or let down, people who have loved you and helped you, or maybe people who have hurt you and let you down. I kind of think of it like serving a prison sentence, you know, and then trying to go back home and living a changed life. Reintegration, I think, must be so tough on, on so many levels, especially if real change has happened. I think the reality is that people will often be cynical and suspicious uh, with that mindset of, do people really change? Here with this guy, it's unquestionable that radical change has taken place. The people from the area, from the country, they all start talking about what's happened and they gather to come see for themselves. And the scripture says in verse 15 that they were afraid when they saw the man clothed sitting down in his right mind. And that type of fear is connected with reverence, with awe, fear, and wonder. It's the same Greek word used to the disciples after they've uh, witnessed Jesus calming the storm. And you can almost hear the presence of the people being like the disciples. Who then is this who has the power to transform? This man was shackled and bound in so many ways. Now he is free. So Jesus does not permit the man to go with him, but instead sends him home with a mandate, a mission. Go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you. So even out of this, there are two immediate application points that I think that are helpful. One, don't underestimate the power of gospel change in your hometown. You know, I imagine there is great joy in starting a new chapter, especially if you've experienced that radical change through Christ. And of course, the commission is to go out. Here I am. Send me. Let's go. Let's go get some theology training. Let's go to the ends of the earth. Let's be ambassadors for Jesus. Let's be gospel bringers. And whilst this is true, 
and whilst that is needed, have you considered that sending out may mean taking what Jesus has done for you back home? I remember the testimony of uh, Eustace, um, Brother Eustace, who, who f- really fleed from Ghana. He, he left Ghana and he used the military as a vehicle to get out of Ghana and gain British residence. And then the most transformative thing happened in his heart. God gave him a heart to go back home. He called him to go back home to Ghana. The place that you feared, the place you didn't want to be, the place that you left to find a better life in a new chapter, God calls you back through radical transformation in Christ to go back and bring that to your home. That home, home might be your great mission field. That might be true of the family home or the hometown or village that you belong. Going out could mean going home. But that might just mean the greatest evidence of gospel change is to be found in you and a light that you must bear to a place to those who knew you for what you were and show them that through Christ what you've become. Show them all that Jesus has done for you. So just, note, just a note, if you get sent home by Jesus, it's not a punishment, okay? But it could be the greatest unlocking for that home turf. Who then is this? who took this person I once knew and transformed their life. And the man just doesn't, he doesn't just go home, by the way. He, he then goes throughout this predominantly gentle area of 10 cities proclaiming the gospel. And it says that as he did this, everyone marveled. So don't underestimate the, gospel, the power of gospel change in your hometown. Secondly, the mission of Jesus was for the one and for the many. I do think it's interesting that Jesus intentionally goes out of his way with his disciples to set foot on Gentile territory. The primary mission field at the time for Jesus' ministry was hometown. And what I mean by that was the people of Israel, the Jews. Jesus says in Matthew 15, to a non-Jewish woman, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, for someone living in Canaan at that time, she immediately understood that Jesus wasn't primarily there for her. And yet, all the time, Jesus is laying this groundwork for the gospel to go further afield and beginning, you know, really the building of this spiritual house of Israel that will be known as the church and be filled with people from all nations, tribes, and tongues. So Jesus goes over for the one, but the But that one will be key in the spreading of the good news about Jesus to many. I'm pretty sure there's a great story about um, Billy Graham and uh, how this this kind of local preacher, who wasn't really known or anything like that, was preaching the gospel. and, And Billy Graham is one of those people who receives the gospel. And he couldn't account for the fact that this one guy, you know, when you're a preacher and preaching to the few you can be a little bit disheartened, yeah? And then he said, but this one guy that changed his life, had his life changed by Jesus, went out as a gospel preacher to millions. One moment with one to cause the impact of many moments with thousands. Jesus goes for the one 
and yet the big picture is always being played out. Very intentional. This is a Holy Spirit-led strategy. This is not just a chance encounter, but a, a God-intended unlocking. I, like Dale said last week, it would have been, I think, madness really to cross to the other side of the Sea of Galilee as evening came after a long day. They could have waited, could have slept, could have recovered, but Jesus had an appointment to keep. And that one appointment would trigger a great scattering of good news across 10 cities for the many. Don't underestimate what God will do through you. Like we said previously, our role is to scatter the word, the kindness of God, the love of God, the gospel of God, wherever we go. But don't be upset or discouraged when we want to do something for the lots, but we end up doing something for the one. We've ran alpha courses before for the one. In our first week of capping Downton recently, we went from three down to one. I think we're back to three now, but, which is great. But don't ever be discouraged about doing something for the one. You never know the many that are going to be impacted by your heart for the one. Now, I also think it's helpful to hear this. The nature of Jesus' actions show intentionality. So he's led by the Spirit in his ministry. So let's be listening to God, responding to God, stepping out in faith as we do. Let's be trusting God. There are going to be times of teaching to the many. There will be times of teaching to the few. There will be times of serving the many. And there will be times of serving the few. Either way, when these things happen, let's give ourselves wholly to the voice of God, to the leadership of the chief shepherd and king, that is Jesus. Let's be Holy Spirit strategic, knowing that through these moments, so much more can we unlock than we could ever imagine, really. So that's freedom to the Gentiles. Okay, freedom to the Jews. Finally, look at freedom to the Jews. Now, I think this area of clean and unclean, of what is holy and unholy, was a point of great challenge for Jewish people, quite naturally, particularly at the time of Jesus. Um, The covenantal law and all the practices that came alongside were physical ways of preparing God's people for what was going to be ushered in through the person and work of Jesus Christ. For the Jewish, they had experienced throughout history a physical reality, the parting of the sea, the manna that came down from heaven, the law of God written on tablets of stone, the ark of the covenant The tent of meeting, the altars for sacrifice, the specialized clothing for priests, the temple of God. These were tangible, grab hold of physical things that were conveying a spiritual significance. They were teaching them about, it was to teach them about something of the power of God and the holiness of God and the need for his people to be a holy people. Yet there is a golden thread that runs from the beginning of the Bible throughout the history of Israel that communicates that this picture is only a shadow, a taste of what God is going to do. That there is a greater reality to be revealed, to be experienced. Little tips and hints throughout Scripture, like when God doesn't look at your physical appearance, when the lineup comes, when he's searching for his next king of Israel, the lineup of all these big, thank God, you know, jeepers. If we were looking for big, strong men, immediately reeled out and 
like everything. <clears throat> he says to Samuel, doesn't he? Don't look as man would look, you know. As, as man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. He's not looking for what's happening on the outside. He's looking for what's happening on the inside. He's not looking to the physical. He's looking to what's happening in the spiritual. What Jesus was doing is ushering in a new spiritual reality, a spiritual reality which had physical significance. So it's, for the Israelites in history, there was lots of physical things to help them convey the significance of what should be feeling in the heart, yeah? The, when Jesus comes, it goes the other way around. There's lots of heart issues. It starts with the heart to help us understand things that should be outworked in the physical. Not based on appearance, but on heart. A new chapter through Jesus in the history of God's people was about to be written. And Jesus has entered into this story as a game changer to the way that people were to understand what it was to be holy, what it was to be set apart for God, what cleanness looked like. Through Jesus... The bread of life, or our daily manna, was not now literal bread like the Israelites experienced, but the word of God and our need for him on a daily basis. The law of God would no longer be engraved on stone, but written on the heart of every believer and brought to light by the work of the Holy Spirit. The temple of God would no longer be a brick by brick, or made of brick by brick, but heart by heart. And we, the people, would be that living temple with Christ as its cornerstone, a place where the presence of God would dwell. Priests would no longer be identified by specialized clothing, but every believer, the evidence of the work of Christ in their life. The kingdom of God was less about the physical and more about the spiritual reign of God's chosen king over men and women's hearts. When Jesus dies on the cross, the physical curtain that divided the presence of God from the people of God, torn in two. Jesus removes the physical barrier to signify that through him, there is now spiritual access to God. Jesus had made peace. And it was and is the peacemaker between mankind and God. And so what we observe in Scripture here in this text is that Jesus took his disciples, led them into areas that were physically unclean for Jews. He broke the barriers of Jewish culture, spent time with tax collectors and sinners, touched and healed those of various skin diseases. He met with and loved the untouchables of Jewish society. He did so because God was doing something new. And I think part of the story of the crossing over the Sea of Galilee, if you zoom out a little bit and you look at east to west and the sea bin in the middle, is to show Jesus' authority to bring peace to be a peacemaker, his power to still the storm and remove the barriers so that it's freedom to cross to the other side. That storm may have signaled to the disciples, hey guys, this is a bad idea. We don't need to be going across. Jesus, you need to help us. Bring a stop to this, hey? Maybe we should go back. A sign that they shouldn't go to the unclean, a sign that they shouldn't go to the unholy, 
But what does Jesus do? He brings peace to the storm. And he makes a way in order to show them that God is ushering a new understanding of what it is to be set apart, what it is to be clean, what it is to be holy, and it starts with the heart. So there is no physical barrier that should prevent the disciples from crossing from one side to the other, and that under the leadership of Jesus, there is no physical barrier stopping them from going into areas that they wouldn't normally go. Jesus goes to Gerasenes for the one, to bring freedom for the individual. But he also does, knowing that through the one, freedom was going to come to the many. He also brings his disciples with him to show the grace of God at work to bring spiritual freedom for all. That he alone can do it. And it's not dependent on outward appearance or Jewish lineage, but this gift, this house of Israel, this kingdom, this church was going to be made up of those of hearts who belong to Jesus. It's going to be a huge culture shock to the disciples. But as long as Jesus was in the boat with them, the peacemaker would pave the way. As Matt Redman, I think, beautifully puts it, you, O Lord, have made a way. The great divide you healed. For when our hearts were far away, your love went further still. Shall we stand together? I invite the worship team. So really in terms of response, I would like to give our time to those, um, those three areas really with a bit of a helpful contextual adjustment. We're going to look at Jesus bringing freedom for the one, Jesus bringing freedom for the many, and Jesus bringing freedom for his church.